Our text this morning begins with a question, and a rather odd question at that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? One might wonder if this question is actually a sincere question or not. Why would anybody raise the question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, the question doesn't just arise out of thin air. Uh, It isn't just uh, totally absurd. Um, It's a question that is raised because of what has just been taught. Notice verse 1. What shall we say then? This is a concluding question. What is the application to what has just been, been taught? What shall we say about this? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So what has been taught that might lead to such a question? Well, in Romans chapter 5, it affirmed that not only are we initially saved by grace, but we are kept by grace as well. Notice Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So not only are we saved by grace, but we're kept by grace. It's not our works, it's not our good deeds, it's not our righteousness that makes us susceptible to God. It's, it's God's grace, God's grace. And then, in addition, later in chapter five, it teaches us that grace is greater than all our sin. And of course, there's a great hymn that's written with those words. The more we sin, the more grace we receive. Notice verse 20 of chapter five. Now the law came in to increase the trespass But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So no matter how much you sin, God's grace is greater than that. No matter how much we sin, God's grace is greater than that. You can't out-sin God's grace. So the question is, well, if that's true, that you, you can't out-sin God's grace, well, then shall we just continue in sin that grace may abound? The issue is, since we're justified by grace, and our standing with God continues to be one of grace, so we just continue to sin and celebrate the grace we have in Christ? In a weird way, someone might argue that God is actually glorified by our sin Because the more we sin, the more we show how loving and gracious God is. The more we put on display the act of his grace. Or as some Christians are concerned, with the idea that if if you teach people that they cannot lose their salvation, then there is no motivation for godly living. If you're going to tell people that they can't lose their salvation. Well, well, then they're just going to live a life of total unrighteousness and, and ungodliness. And it's the most uh, horrible doctrine that one could imagine. So it's not really all that absurd to ask the question. What shall we say? 
Shall we continue to live in sin? Shall we just let our lives go in order that grace may abound? Well, there's an adamant denial. By no means, verse 2. NAS, may it never be. King James, God forbid. It's an exclamatory response. No way. Absolutely not. If you come to that conclusion, you don't understand grace at all. You don't understand God's mercy. You don't understand God's redemptive work. If that's the conclusion, that because we're saved by grace, that we ought to just continue then in our sin, we certainly have gotten it all wrong. God forbid. That's the wrong answer. The rebuttal is, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 2. Now I'm going to answer, or I'm going to ask a series of questions to try to unpack exactly what does that mean. How can we who died to sin live any longer in it? So a series of questions. First, when did we become dead to sin? When did that happen? We who died to sin. When did we die to sin? Answer, when we were united to Christ's death. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We have been baptized into his death. In being united to Christ's death, we die to sin. So now the question is, when or how were we made participants in Christ's death? And the answer is through baptism. Through baptism. The way we become united with Christ's death is through baptism. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Baptism is the agent that unites us to Christ's death. Notice verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him, and if you circle your Bible... I would circle the preposition by. By baptism into death. Baptism is the agent. It's by baptism that a person is united to Christ's death and the benefits of that death and resurrection. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his. How is that done? Through baptism. Now, that might have come as a bit of a shock to you this morning. So we have to ask another question. And that is, what is the baptism that's being talked about in verse 6? When it says we are united with Christ through baptism, what baptism are we talking about? And there are two alternatives. You could be talking about water baptism. 
And if we're talking about water baptism, then the passage is teaching that baptismal regeneration, meaning that we are saved as a result of simply being baptized outwardly with water. And there indeed are churches that teach that very thing, that it is through your being baptized by water that you are brought into union with Christ and that your sins are forgiven and that you have uh, benefits of all his death and resurrection. Or is it talking about a spiritual baptism? Is it talking about that which is accomplished by the Holy Spirit? I would submit to you that the text is talking about spiritual baptism and not water baptism. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, mere water baptism cannot unite us to Christ. We must have faith to be united to Christ. We have been through a lengthy passage demonstrating that without faith, circumcision is meaningless. Chapter 2, raise the question. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Bapti circumcision without faith was meaningless. There were a lot of Jewish people that thought because they were physically circumcised, they were right with God. Romans chapter 4 raised the question, what should we then say about Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh? What did Abraham find? For if Abraham were justified by works, he has something of which to glory, but not before God. For how was Abraham's faith reckoned unto him? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? The answer was it was when he was uncircumcised. It wasn't his physical circumcision. It was his faith. Physical circumcision was an outward sign. Colossian makes an analogy of circumcision and baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, the analogy is that in Christ we are circumcised with a circumcision that's referred to as without hands, not a physical circumcision. Listen to Colossians 2.11. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Then it compares circumcision with baptism. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. So just as there is a non-physical circumcision, there is a non-physical baptism that's accomplished by faith. And faith is what is always emphasized when it talks about baptism. Galatians 3.26 For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. But notice, faith is what is being referred to. 
You are sons of God by faith. As many as you have been baptized have put on Christ. It's referring to a spiritual baptism. So where does the Bible talk about this spiritual baptism? 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit were we all baptized into one body. We were all united together as one people of God and a part of the body of the Lord Jesus Christ participating in the benefits of his death and resurrection. So water baptism is symbolic. But it is purely that. It is symbolic. Representing what takes place through spiritual baptism. By a work of the Holy Spirit, through faith, we are united to the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection. So we are baptized by water as an expression of our faith, as a declaration of our faith, as a symbol. And the symbol is that when we're going down under the water, we are being baptized with Christ, and when we come up out of the water, we are being raised with Christ. But it is not that physical act of going <coughs> down under the water and coming up out of the water that actually unites us to Christ's death. That happened when we had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by the working of the Holy Spirit who made us partic partakers in the benefits of that death and resurrection. So that's the how. Now the question is why. Why did we become dead to sin? The design of Christ's death was so that we would live a different life free from sin. Notice Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism and death in order that. Here's the reason. Here's the purpose. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That just as Jesus had a new experience having come forth and living this, this life, so too we have uh, this new life in which it's intended that we live to the honor and glory of God. Now we have to ask the question, but what does this mean to be dead to sin? What is it that we are actually, actually talking about? What was achieved in the death of Christ? And let me just say to you that this morning, what I have to say to you does not exhaust the issue. We still got Romans 7, 8, 9 to go. Uh, but this is the introductory to one aspect of what was accomplished by the death of Christ. All right? so, so there's much more, but I'm limiting myself to, to what's here this morning. And not even all of what's here this morning. What does it mean in verse 7? For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Well, let's begin with what it does not mean. It does not mean that we no longer sin. And it does not mean that we don't have sinful desires anymore. Notice Romans 6, 12. 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So there are sinful desires that are present with us. And there are going to be sinful desires. There are going to be sinful emotions. There are going to be uh, sinful feelings that arise. There are going to be times in which we are going to be tempted until the very day that we enter into the presence of Christ. So to be dead from sin doesn't mean that there aren't sinful desires or tendencies that no longer exist. In fact, we have to battle against those. We're going to see in just a few moments. So what does being dead from sin mean? In a positive sense, what happens that we can be said to be dead from sin? In what sense? Well, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. What is primarily in view is a legal idea. It is a legal representation in this verse. When you were dead, you legally became free from sin's obligations. Now notice Romans 7, 1 and 2. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives. For if a woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. In other words, she's legally free. Until her husband dies, she's bound to that, that marriage. But once he's dead, she is no longer bound. She no longer has any legal obligations. There are no demands that are placed upon her, and she's free to marry somebody else. So the illustration is one of, of legality. So through our union with Christ, we have been legally set free from the slavery to sin that we were in. We have been set free from that aspect of original sin, of, of that, that moral corruption that existed. And so we are no longer under sin's debt or obligation. Notice Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing then here's the application, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Circle enslaved. This is what is being referred to as having died to sin, meaning that we are no longer legally bound. We are no longer in slavery to sin. This is the believer's emancipation proclamation. Verse 7. For the one who has died has been set free. No longer enslaved to sin. No longer a slave to the evil one. But you have been set free from sin. Now, we can better understand 
our legal freedom from the slavery of sin by considering slavery in our own nation. I'm going to give you an extended analogy here, and then we'll look at the applications. President Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January the 1st, 1863. As the nation approached its third year of bloody civil war, the Emancipation Proclamation declared, and I quote, that all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are here and henceforward shall be free. That was the Emancipation Proclamation. That all persons held as slaves within the rebellious states are here and henceforward shall be free. But what did that mean in actuality? What did that mean in practice? What did that mean in the lives of slaves in 1863, January 1? On one of my vacations, I was in Tennessee, and one of the things that we did was we visited the Hermitage. The Hermitage is the plantation of Andrew Jackson, the president. Andrew Jackson was a slaveholder. Two slaves that belonged to Andrew Jackson had particularly interesting stories. They are Aaron and Hannah. Andrew Jackson purchased six-year-old Aaron in 1791. He purchased Hannah, born about 1794, when she was between eight and 12 years of age. Andrew Jackson purchased the 1,050-acre plantation, the Hermitage, in 1804. At the time of the purchase, he had nine slaves. At the time of his death, he had 161 slaves. Hannah grew and ultimately became the head of the household servants. Aaron grew up and was trained to be a blacksmith, a very important position on the plantation. The two married in 1820. They had 10 children. All of the 10 children reached adulthood. January 1, 1863, Abraham Lincoln declared all Slaves are free. So what effect did that have on Aaron and Hannah's lives? Now remember, all the slaves were free. Of course, the Civil War was still going on. Hannah, while the Civil War was still taking place, exercised her freedom and moved to Nashville with her daughter, Martha, where she provided for herself by becoming a midwife. Aaron, her husband, decided to remain at the Hermitage long after the Emancipation Proclamation and long after the Civil War had ended. His life, his experience, actually changed very little. For 10 years, he continued as he was, 
And then after 10 years, he decided to move off of the plantation, join his wife in Nashville, and became a peddler. Though he had been legally free, he lived very much like he did when he was still a slave. His experience had changed very little. But eventually he came to realize and exercised his freedom. But one might marvel and say, well, why wouldn't he have exercised that freedom from the get-go? And we can look at all the sociological issues. We can look at the fears. We can look at, at his lack of experience and so many things. But I think we have a tendency to scratch our head and say, why wouldn't anyone who has been given this freedom want to exercise it? In the same way, we should scratch our heads and ask the question, why would anyone who has been given freedom from sin want to continue to live in it? Why would you want to remain on sin's plantation? Why don't you understand how much better the world is off of the plantation of sin and living a life of righteousness? We have been set free from sin's claim. We have the Emancipation Proclamation. Now comes the application of this doctrine. It comes in verse 11. So, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You're supposed to reflect upon that. You're supposed to take this into consideration. You're, you're supposed to think about what the ramifications are in being set free from sin's mastery over us. There are so many things we can think about. We can think in terms of the Civil War and all of the people that shed their blood so that slaves could go free. What a waste if they didn't exercise that freedom. We can think about the blood of Christ that was shed for us and ask the question of are we dishonoring that, that sacrifice of Christ by not exercising our freedom? We might ask the question, what does it mean to be alive unto God? Verse 11, so you must consider yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. The idea here is now we have the ability to live for God. Romans 6.10 said, for the death he died, he died to sin. But, once for, all, but uh, once for all, and the life he lives, he lives to God. Now for the first time, we are able to please God. Hebrews 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now we can please him. Now we can accomplish his purposes. Now we can do his bidding. Now we can fulfill the reason for which he saved us, to live unto God. During the Civil War, many of the slaves did not know what to do with their newfound freedom. 
They were set free, but to set free to what? Where were they going to go? Where were they going to live? How were they going to sustain themselves? They were free. But what was next? But for the child of God, our, our freedom is quite different. For our freedom is not to be set free to wander. Our freedom is not to be set free and then say, now what? But we have been set free in order to serve the living and true God. We have been set free in order to live unto him. We are like the children of Israel who were in the land of Egypt, who were slaves. And God brought them out of the land of Egypt, not to be on their own, but to serve him, to follow him, to accomplish his will. And in so doing, he provides for them, he carries for them, he nourishes them. He's their new master, but in a master that is so different from a pharaoh. And we are under a new master, but a master that is so different than the master of sin. Now we have the privilege of living for God. As a result, there are, there are concluding exhortations. The first is found in verse 12. We are not to let sin desires master us any longer. Let me say that again. We're not to let sin's desires master us any longer. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign, key word, reign in your mortal body to make it you obey, key word, its passions. You see, we still have sinful passions. They haven't been done away. We still have sinful desires. But we have been given the ability and freedom to say no to those desires. We have now found a new ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, and Romans 7 is going to unpack this much more, but now we have the ability to resist. And we're not even rebelling, because we're free. And we can say to sin, you don't have power over me. You don't have master over me. Many of you are old enough to remember uh, Flip Wilson. The devil made me do it. Uh, no. We, we, we can't say that. The devil can't make us do anything. He can tempt us. He can work against us. But we've been set free. We're no longer in the kingdom of darkness. We're in the kingdom of light. We're in God's kingdom under his rule, set free. So we can say no. We don't have to rationalize. We don't need to do what is, what is wrong. Secondly, because we have been set free from sin, we are not to intentionally sin. We're not to intentionally sin. Notice verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. 
Don't present yourselves. Don't offer your hands, your feet, your bodies as instruments for ungodly things, unrighteous things. Don't intentionally sin. Don't be like Aaron who made a choice to stay on the plantation. Don't make plans for sin. Now, you may look at me and say, wow, who in the world would make plans for sin? I would say we do. We do. Do not plan or scheme how to fulfill your sinful desires. Don't set times to be alone so that you can do certain things that you wouldn't do if somebody were with you. Don't long for times in which you're out from your parents' direction or your wife is away so that you can engage in behaviors that you wouldn't if they were there. Remember how Potiphar's wife put Joseph into temptation and she made it possible by removing all of the slaves that were, were present so she and Joseph could be alone. Don't make plans to be alone on a date just so you can give in to your sinful desires. Don't. Don't plan to sin and say, God's going to forgive me anyway. I belong to him. I know he's going to forgive me. So why shouldn't I just do what I want to do? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. You don't realize if you have that mentality of how better it is off the plantation. How better it is to live a life of godliness and righteousness and holiness. So much rewarding, so much more fulfilling, and so much more honoring to God. Consider, reflect, think about what you're doing and saying. Give yourself to God. Don't intentionally sin. Rather, do intentionally live your life to honor and glorify and to serve him. Notice Romans 6.13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Your members being your bodily parts. Now presenting your hands, your feet, your activities, your doings to honor and serve God. The word to present here is, is literally to present a sacrifice. And now we are to present our bodies as, as a sacrifice unto God. Romans 12 is the capstone 
to everything from Romans 6 up until that point. So Romans 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, <laughs> therefore, based on everything from Romans 6 to Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Which is your reasonable service, King James. Which is your spiritual act of service, ESV. Present your bodies. To dedicate yourself. To make a resolve. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to make plans not to sin. I'm going to make plans to live a holy life. I'm going to stop and I'm going to consider that I've been made free from sin, that, that, that I can say no, and then ask myself, well, what can I do to, to further that commitment? How, how can I achieve that desire? How can I guard my heart and life? Just as I once planned to sin, how can I plan to live a godly and holy and righteous life? What steps can I take? To present my body as a sacrifice to God, saying, here, take me, use me to your honor and to your glory. We will get into that in much more detail in two weeks as we work through Romans chapter 7 and Paul's life. But for this morning, the conclusion is this. What shall we say then? Knowing that we are saved by grace, knowing that we are kept by Grace. What should we say then? Shall we continue to live in sin so that grace may abound? By no means may it never be. God forbid. For how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer in it? How shall we that have been set free legally so that sin doesn't have its demand over me since I am no longer a slave but have been set free and have the power to choose to say no to what I once could not overcome by myself, but now by the power of the Holy Spirit, I can say no to the sin that's in my life and live to him. Not perfectly, not completely. But I can say no to those desires. And I certainly can guard against planning against sin. And I certainly can make a decision that from this day forward, I'm going to live differently. I'm going to be committed to Christ in a way that I've never been committed to him before. Today, I'm moving off the plantation. I'm going to live as the free man that God has made me. Free to live for him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us. Help us to live like the free people that we are. Lord, guard us against any thought of abusing your grace. Any horrendous understanding of grace that would cause us to think that we should just continue to live in sin so that grace will abound. But Lord, help us to understand how better off 
we are to move off the plantation. May, us, may we understand that serving this new master is so, so much better. Help us to consider all that it means. And Lord, guard us so that, first of all, we decide that sin no longer is going to have its mastery over us, that we're not going to obey its, its, its desires. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a fight. But Lord, we don't have to give in. We don't have to say yes to those sinful desires. We can say no. Oh Lord, certainly guard us from making plans and schemes of thinking how we can carry out those sinful desires, how we can be alone or steal or do whatever it is. But Lord, may we quickly repent. May we understand all such planning and scheming is, is evil, is sin. And oh Lord God, help us to see the beauty of living for you. Help us to see its glory, its praise, its fulfillment in our own lives. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Oh Lord, help us to relish our freedom. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.